test. Good evening. I'm Tim Raines with the Palm Springs Cultural Center, and welcome to the Camelot Theaters. For those of you who may not know it, the Palm Springs Cultural Center is a nonprofit organization supporting programs like this one, arts and education in the local community. How many of you have joined us on Facebook? Woo-hoo! You rock. We do have a Facebook page, both the Palm Springs Cultural Center and the Camelot Theaters, as well as many of our major film festivals. If you like, go ahead and join us, find out about updated events and the like. We have some amazing things upcoming. Shortly tomorrow, we are hosting Palm Springs Speaks. It's the first in a speaker series. It'll be Dan Savage. There are tickets still available. Check it out online. And then following that will be Deepak Chopra later on in the spring. We also have two other major film um, events coming up quickly. We have The Women, which is showing on November 22nd. It's the 1939 film. Now, warning everybody, it's not your typical movie-going experience. It's interactive. It's exciting. You can dress up in costume. You can catcall. There will be prizes and giveaways. It'll be in the uh, big theater, and that'll be on Wednesday, November 22nd. And then just in time for the holiday, we'll be celebrating it with The Sound of Music on December 8th. And Kim Kathar, Karath, thank you, I always do that backwards. Kim Karath, who played Gretel Von Trapp, will be here to talk about her experiences. And tickets for that just went on sale today. Then quickly looking into the future, we're bringing back the American Documentary Film Festival. We're introducing the art, Architecture Design and Art Festival for Mid-Century Modernism Week, and then we'll be premiering a Cannabis Film Festival and Summit in April on the 20th. And now to turn it over to our host of the evening, the Coachella Valley Storytellers Project. Thank you. I'll go upstage. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for the Coachella Valley Storytellers Project. I'm Daniela Franco, and I'm the Features Editor and Storytelling Coach at The Desert Sun. You might remember me, I was a storyteller myself in February if you've been here before. Who has been here before? Thank you, thank you so much. For those of you who are new, here's what you still see tonight. You'll see four people, regular people like you, not professional storytellers, tell a story around a theme. The theme tonight is family. If you didn't know that when you bought tickets, it's family. By creating a space where community members can share first-person stories, this project explores the importance of the personal narrative as a means for connection. The Coachella Coachella Valley Storytellers Project is produced by the Desert Sun with our partner, UC Riverside Palm Desert's Low Residency MFA Program. The series is dedicated to the idea that oral storytelling and journalism have the same goals, serving, reflecting, and connecting a community while fostering empathy among those people. I'll invite Mag Downs and Todd Goldberg to say a couple words. They're our partners at UC Riverside and fellow storytelling coaches. Why are we moving so oddly with our legs? (laughs) If you do storytelling, we'll teach you how to walk sideways like a penguin. Uh, Thank you all for coming tonight. This is the conclusion of our second season of the Storytellers Project. We started this um, in a sequential way with time two years ago. Um, And it's such a a fun thing for Maggie and for me to do. Um, Maggie and I both work at UC Riverside. I'm the director of the Graduate School in Creative Writing. Uh, Maggie, who will get to speak for herself momentarily, uh, is our uh, director of marketing. Uh, we're both also writers, um, and so getting to work with these these fantastic storytellers is just an extension of what we do 
on an everyday basis. But what we do specifically for UCR, and as it relates to this, is this is just another one of the things that we like to do that's free or low cost that lets the Coachella Valley experience culture in a different and exciting way. If you've not been to UCR Palm Desert, we have a full slate of events almost every single night. Um, I don't go to most of them because I like sports. <laughs> and these books I write don't write themselves. Um, but you should go. And you'd see Maggie at those things. Maggie, tell us more. <laughs> well, this Thursday, we have the luminous Liska Jacobs. She's the author of Catalina. And, um, and if you haven't seen it already, don't worry. You'll see it at Costco and every bookseller ever, everywhere. Um, and you can see her for free on Thursday night at 6 p.m. And if you miss her there, you can catch her on our radio show. Todd and I just started a, I don't know, <gasps> Todd and I just uh, launched a radio show for KCOD uh, called Open Book, where we will be talking about books and how they've changed people's lives. And we'll be interviewing um, local creatives and entrepreneurs and authors and just everyday people about the books that shape their lives. So, and what are the call letters for KCOD? I always forget. K-C-O-D. No, no, the numbers. <laughs> the numbers. 1450. 1450. So yes. tune in every other Saturday. I will learn that, but it's a very new show. All right, so thank you guys for coming tonight. <laughs> and did you have anything else to add? Just wanted to apologize briefly for Maggie. No. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you guys enjoy the show tonight. If you are interested in taking part in Coachella Valley Storytellers um, for our next season, please come up after the show, talk to Daniela. Talk to Maggie, talk to me. We'd be happy to tell you more about the process of going from being out there to being up here. Have a lovely night, everybody. We managed to walk properly this time around. It's fine. Well, tonight we're hosted by the amazing Camelot Theaters, which I'd like to give a little applause. <laughs> I'd like to give a special thank you to Michael Green for making this possible and to Matthew and Tim for all their hard work behind the scenes. This is our largest sold-out crowd, so thank you for being here tonight. <laughs> Who got the subscriber bonus, the treat, the little brownie that you got? Yay! <laughs> Wonderful. All of you are subscribers to the Desert Sun, and we very much appreciate your subscription because it's what makes our journalism possible. Tonight, you got fairy tale brownies. They've been partners with the Storytellers Project since 2014 because they believed in the same mission that we did. So they believe that at the end of a story, you should get a sweet ending. So they're there for the brownie. <laughs> so thank you again for helping our journalism. If you're not a subscriber, we hope that you consider your $10 for tonight for your ticket will actually be a one-month digital subscription to the Desert Sun. So thank you for letting us show you our value tonight. You m and for those that are subscribers, you may have seen our recent coverage, such as the historic Palm Springs City Council now being entirely LGBT, and that Wonder Woman is going to be coming to the desert for the Palm Springs International Film Fest. So yes, she will be coming. Yeah, right? I'm excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> we are also very happy to announce our themes for 2018. If you caught a program, you have more detailed descriptions, but I'll just say it now, just very quickly. For February, we will have Love and Heartbreak. May will be Obsession. 
September will be I was wrong, and December will be resolutions. So if you're interested in being a storyteller, as Todd and Maggie said, please come talk to us. We'd love to have you. And I hope you grabbed, grabbed a drink and some snacks. The popcorn is delicious. Probably going to go get some more later. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed tonight. Let's get started. California born and raised, Carla Dilly's love to the living desert, Sioux and garden started about the same time it opened in 1970. Now working as the volunteer chair at the Li Living Desert, she will tell us a story about her love for animals. Are you really out there? Yeah. It's kind of dark. Good evening, everyone. Um, yeah, my story starts back in 1970, and I'll do the math for you. I was 15. I'm 62 now. I'll tell you that. I'm not going to tell you how much I weigh. Okay, <laughs> so it was 1970, and I had spent quite a few weekends in the Palm Desert area, or Palm Springs area, with my mom and dad. We would do our Easter vacation back then, and a lot of golf weekends, and my two sisters and I, we enjoyed Palm Springs very much. But in 1970, I was basically an only child. Both sisters were married and out of the house. Mom and Dad announced that they were going to buy a vacation home in Palm Desert. And I went, okay, I don't know where that is, but I like the desert, so we'll give it a try. So once Mom and Dad got settled, we decided to start exploring. And my mom had heard about a location called the Living Desert Reserve. And their home was actually just off of Portola, uh, about a mile uh, north of the Living Desert Reserve. So mom, being an avid photographer, or so she thought, uh, we would go up there, and she would explore her passion of photography. And I just started to explore. And I soon found that I really liked the plants. They had certain fragrances, especially creosote. Um, and the animals. It wasn't a vast collection then. We're up to 450 now, so back then we didn't have quite so many. Um, but I really enjoyed the Living Desert Reserve. Well, Mom and Dad, when they were out here, they would go golfing, and that left me time to go um, lay out by the pool, play solitaire, and go into my dad's medicine cabinet and borrow some dental floss, usually about a two-foot strip. And I would take that, and I would tie a little slip knot in it, and I'd go out to one of the open fields, and I would catch desert iguanas. <laughs> they were fascinating, very light in color, long. And I'd slip that little noose on it, slip knot, pick it up, and I'd check them out. Yeah, that's a pretty good size one. It's kind of catch and release most of the time. Every once in a while, I'd take one home <laughs> to show mom and dad. Um, but anyway, so that was kind of where I started working with animals. Segway a few years later. I'm now graduated high school. I went to Pasadena City College and decided to get my degree in fashion merchandising, marketing, fashion industry. That's all I really knew. And then life happens. Anybody ever have life happen? <laughs> okay, I graduate. I get a full-time retail career. I get married. A few years later, it's time to start having kids while you're juggling a full-time retail career and a marriage. And our trips to Palm Desert still happened um, 
just not as frequent. But we would come out and see Grandma and Grandpa. I'd take the kids out looking for lizards. and But we would always go to the Living Desert Reserve. Mom always had her two free tickets that she got with her membership every year. Had to use those up. My daughter, Christina, sometimes I call her Christina, sometimes I refer to her as Sully. That's her nickname. She was passionate about the big cats. So every time we would go to Living Desert Reserve, we had to start with the mountain lions. She loved the mountain lions. And I think that was the main big cat that they had at that point. So this went on for a while. And life continues. And then the next thing I know, I go through life happening again. I get a divorce after a 20-year marriage. I have my three kids. This time, I had just started a new career, and that was working parks and recreation for the city of Laverne, which I loved. And I was just juggling. Every day was survival. Three kids, three different schools, get them there, get to work, hit a board meeting, whatever. Survival. Anybody ever done that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I still managed to find time, though, to connect with my daughter, and my two boys were, one's in the military and the other one's a full-time artist. They were out of the home. And so Sully and I did things such as go to um, Wildlife Way Station out in the valley and check out the big cats there. We went to Shambhala and checked out Tippy Hedron's place with all of the different animals. And one small vacation we took was up to Salinas to Vision Quest Ranch. That's actually where they train like Gentle Ben, the big bear, and some of the big lions. And we slept in one of their, um, it was called a bed and breakfast, but it was a, a raised tent with open siding. And at night we could hear the sound of the lions roaring and the elephants bellowing, and it was really neat. But in the morning they brought us breakfast. An elephant brought us breakfast in a giant basket. And they also brought extra treats for the elephants, so we got to feed them whole bananas and apples and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going along. Christina decides she's now finishing with high school. She's going to go off to University of Idaho. Conservation biology is what she's looking at. And by now, I'm 52, and I'm like, okay, we're having an empty nest here. And I got married again to my husband, Ron. And Christina's off in Idaho. Ron and I decide to make Palm Desert our full-time home. Well, you know what? Living on a golf course, 27 holes, beautiful, lots of friends, nice house. I, I have a really nice life. But I looked at my calendar, and I saw 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 days of golf in a row. I'm like, you know what? You need to get a life, girlfriend. <laughs> you need some sense of purpose. So I decided to look around. Okay, I don't want to do anything in fashion and not really into parks and rec thing right now. Living Desert. I used to love it there. Maybe they've got a volunteer program. So segue, that was nine years ago that I actually started um, at the Living Desert. And... I started off as a regular volunteer, and I said, just put me wherever. I've been in charge for too long. I'll do, where, do whatever you want. And so Christina's now away in Idaho, and I would share stories with her. One particular story, I was working in the butterfly garden 
and the pavilion. And the zookeeper came up and said, I need your help. Can you please help me do a butterfly release? I said, I'm happy to help, but I've never done that before. Can you show me? Oh, certainly. So she goes, it's pretty simple. We have the enclosure here with all the butterflies, and you see the chrysalis, and they start to wiggle and wobble a little bit. You'll see some of the butterflies have already emerged. They're the ones that are flapping their wings and drying them. All you do is just take one butterfly at a time and take it out into the garden and place it on a flower. I did that 30 times. That was so cool. And as I'm doing that, I look up on the mountain and I see one of our big, majestic, bighorn sheep just up there. And he's got, he's saying, you got this, girlfriend. <laughs> and I'm going, I've got it. I can't wait to share it with Sully. And so I did. And when I called her and told her, all she said was, Mom, no fair. I'm away at college, and you're doing all the good stuff. I'm like, you'll get to do it. Trust me. So during the next few years, she's at University of Idaho. She's doing her education. I'm spending time with my new family at the Living Desert. I had a great family by birth. Gave birth to three great kids. Had a new family by the new marriage. But now I had my Living Desert family. We're all volunteers. We have 120 paid staff, but there's over 500 volunteers. And without the volunteers, the zoo really can't open. They really are critical. And we all believe in the same thing. We love the plants. We love the animals. But mostly, we enjoy telling the story. And one of the stories that I love to tell from my field biology days, now that I understand it better, is this professor was great. I'm taking fashion courses, but I have to take an elective, so I take field biology. Well, there is a reason for everything in nature. You may not know it, but there really is. Take the cottontail bunny, for instance. We did a field trip up at that living desert, and he says, I'm going to show you a couple things. First, with the cottontail bunny rabbit, that's a cute little cottontail, isn't it, huh? What do you think it's for? I don't know. Easter, I don't know, looks cute. <laughs> so anyway, so picture this. Every day, animals and plants wake up to survive, kind of like us in survival mode. So you have a predator, let's call it Mr. Coyote, and he sees that cottontail, and he is chasing after that bunny. He's going to get that bunny, and he's focused in on that white cottontail, and the next thing you know, that cottontail disappears. The money rabbit tucks it underneath. And the coyote lost his focal point. The rabbit skipped under a bush. He was safe to live another day. So fun stories like that. Well, this brings me back to Sully now, um, finishing at University of Idaho. And she says, you know, I learned some great stuff, Mom, but I still love big cats. I didn't learn how to take care of a big cat. And I said, well... Then you need to do a little bit more research. So there's two colleges in the United States that offer exotic animal training and management. And one of them happens to be in Simi Valley, very close by. The other one's in Florida. So she ended up going into what they call the EDEM program, exotic animal training and management. And in her second year, she got to walk spirit. You know what spirit is? He's a mountain lion. So that little girl that had to see mountain lions every time we went to the living desert, 
got to walk a mountain lion. Well, she's now been at the Living Desert for three years. She's a full-time zookeeper. She works with striped hyenas, more leopards, camels, giraffes. Um, she brought home an African-crested porcupine baby that we had to take care of and bottle feed for um, until it was on its own. Um, but somehow, my mom introduced us to the Living Desert Reserve 48 years ago. And I now have 30 family members that have all been to the Living Desert. It's part of our family tradition now, whether it's wild lights during the holidays or whether it's just a fun trip when they happen to be out this way. And um, I really like my Living Desert family a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I did not know that about the cottontail bunny. And now I will always be able to tell that story. Thank you. Next up, Anthony. Born in England, Anthony Davis came to the US around 39 years ago and settled in Southern California. With a passion for 19th century photography and writing, tonight he, would, he will tell us a story about his family through time. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can't see you out there. My story is very different. <laughs> but then that's the whole thing about the storytelling project. My story starts in 1959. My father, Michael Davis, had a massive heart attack. And uh, this was followed by two severe heart attacks within several days. And uh, at the time, my father was given six months to live, which is not a very long time. And he was a real family man, and he loved his family. He spent hours on the telephone to various members of the family. He liked to visit, and he decided that if he, he had the strength to do so, that he was going to do his family tree. Now, a lot of us have done family trees, but my father really was determined because he figured it's a short period of time, we better get cracking. So, um, the, as the family members would call up and, and ask how he was, my mother, the gatekeeper, would not let him talk to any of them. Because generally, if they had problems, they came to my father. But as time went by, after several weeks, she allowed him a few minutes with each person. And um, after sort of figuring out, telling them how he was doing, he'd ask them about family members, birth dates, things like that. I don't think they quite understood why, but he really wanted to put this all down on paper. And so um, he started doing that. He um, wrote everything out on, on uh, graph paper because that was the easiest thing to keep it steady and put in all these names and uh, birth dates, uh, dates of marriage and things like that. And uh, what he really wanted to do was to trace his parents' family. Now his father was Russian, so he had no chance in getting any information from Russia on, on his father's family. 
but his mother was Dutch. And the Dutch, in their wisdom, have kept records of every member of the, uh, in, the, in the country from the mid-1600s. So uh, time went by, quite a lot of time actually, and he gained strength and uh, he was doing okay. And he decided he wanted to go to Amsterdam. Well, this is from England, so it wasn't too bad. Distance is quite short. And I accompanied him on this trip. And um, so we, we went to the public records office in, in Amsterdam. I don't know if you've ever been to a public records office, but they're, they're sort of large mausoleums with, you know, lots and lots of information that you don't know how to get to. <laughs> so uh, his, um, his uh, Dutch grandfather had told him that the family had all come from Spain. They left during the Inquisition and they went from Spain and they went to Holland. And they adopted the name of Granada, where they came from in Spain. So armed with two names, Granada and Conaim, which is his mother's maiden name, he um, went up to the clerk and he said, do you have any information on these two families? Well, of course, this is Amsterdam. Have we got information? Yes, we do. Well, the clerk says, uh, she takes his mother's birth date and says, uh, wait here a minute. Well, about 30 minutes later, she comes back with this huge tome. I mean, it was big. 1888 on the spine. And she flicks through it and she opens it up and she shows my father the entry of his mother's birth. Wow. Well, he broke down. <laughs> I mean, I'd never seen my father cry. And it was a very emotional moment for both him, obviously, because he's seeing something that was a piece of history, or his history. And it was hard, it was, it was emotional for me too. Anyway, we, we came back from Amsterdam with lots of information uh, on different members of the family, the Conines, Granadas. But they had told him, if you need information, every city, in Holland has its own public records office and you have to write to them all to get the information you want. Well, this is the 1960s and things are really slow. There's no internet. If you want information, you write. So you, he got his secretary, who did not speak Dutch, incidentally, <laughs> and she wrote to all these different records offices with the names that she had. And, you know, weeks went by and they responded, yes, we do have information on, on these names. Send money. So, you know, that, that took a little longer. You sent the money then you waited a few more weeks. And eventually things started turning up. And um, so my father scrapped his original uh, family tree and he started using three-foot-wide graph paper like this in rolls. And uh, anybody that married into the family, he traced their history too. So this was no longer a family tree, this was a family forest. <laughs> and over the next 22 years, he built, he kept adding roll after roll to the original roll of graph paper, the length of a football field. And he would spend his days at home 
with the, the scrolls out across the dining room table. You couldn't get a meal there. He had to eat in the kitchen, you know. And uh, he would play his music loud, and he wrote everything in by hand. And, uh, you know, this, this is his hobby. And he was determined before he died that he was going to do this. Well, my father lived to the age of 68. And when he died, I and my brother inherited the family tree. Now, we didn't have a whole lot of interest in the family tree. Quite honestly, it's like, well, you know, life happens. And we're busy. I've moved to the United States. My brother moved to the United States. We're building a business. Um, I was getting a divorce. <laughs> uh, you know, these are the things that sort of take up a lot of time. So the family tree sort of lived in various garages in different homes. And, you know, every now and again, I sort of open up the box. Now, I, the part of the, the things that I got, other than the scrolls, were thousands of pages of birth dates, of records from public records offices. I mean, literally, box after box. And every time I'd open up the box, I'd take one look at it and go, whoa, <laughs> put it away again. <coughs> well, eventually, I became an ancestor, a grandfather. <laughs> you know, once you're a grandparent, you're an ancestor. <laughs> and... Um, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should put the, the, the grandchildren on the tree. So I took it out, took out the box again, took another look at it, put it back in the garage. I mean, you know, really, there was so much information. My father had accumulated about 4,500 names. And um, I just had no way of doing anything with it. Anyway, I was working on um, writing my first book. I'm on my third at the moment. And this was about a man by the name of Barney Bonato. Now, Barney Bonato, you've never heard of. Anybody here know who Barney Bonato was? Oh, I knew you wouldn't. But you know his company. He formed with Cecil Rhodes a company called De Beers Consolidated Diamond Mines. Yeah, he was one of the few men that made a real fortune in the, 90, in the 1870s diamond rush in South Africa. Anyway, I thought, well, I, I need to know more about this man because I'm writing about him, so I need to know about his family. Now, the internet has come along in, over, after all these years, and I found online genealogy. Amazing. And I started looking, and uh, I put in Barney Bonato's name. I came up with a, some information. And then I, I thought, well, you know, while I'm looking at this website, and this is called genie.com, um, I put my grandfather's name in, see what would happen. Wow, there was quite a lot of information there. Now I'm interested. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to get the stuff out of the garage and maybe add a few names because I don't think this is very complete. So it took me a few weeks to figure out my father's alphanumeric system that he'd used to uh, put together this family forest. And uh, after I figured it out and put some more in, I, I thought, well, I put a few things on, uh, online. I added over 2,000 names. Yeah. That, and you know what? I'm still adding them. The great thing about being online with genealogy, all of a sudden I met cousins I never even knew existed all over the world, all over Europe, from China, India, 
South Africa. It was amazing. So, uh, you know, I thought this is really something. And I realized what the obsession was that my father had about putting together a family tree. Well, two years and three months ago, I was given six months to live. And I understood my father's obsession, finally. Thank you. I am trying to picture a football field filled with graph paper. <laughs> that seems pretty impressive. Now I'm going to imagine that when I'm watching football games. <laughs> Next up, a realtor and women rights activist, Joel Palmos, was raised between Greece and Spain. Tonight he will tell us a story about hope and love. She actually said my name right. <laughs> uh, okay, wow, you really cannot see anything here. Okay, well, um, my story starts in 2001. That's when I came to the U.S. Um, initially, I came to New York. Um, you know, went there on vacation, fell in love. I was 20 years old. I decided to stay. And um, love ended badly. <laughs> but I was already here, you know. I love this country. I was, uh, you know, at least stay over here. And then a few years later, I was doing production. I had a really, really strong uh, TV production background. So production took me to LA. Um, you know, I came to LA. Um, um, it was January. And it was so nice. It was snowing on the other side of, of the country. So I was like, oh my god, this is really nice. So I kept coming more and more. Um, eventually, it was um, 2006 that I decided to move over here. It was around summer, summer 2006. A few months later, around December, I met my husband. Um, it was very close to Christmas. We met online. Um, as of today, we still fight to who went to who, because I know he saw my profile and he emailed me, but he says, I'm the one that sent him a message, which that didn't happen. But anyway, <laughs> for this story, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> We're still together. Um, anyway, so um, we, um, we had the first date in LA. My mom was visiting from Spain, and I just was like, okay, mom, um, I'll be right back. I just went, I met with him. Um, you know, went for dinner. Um, you know, we had a really, really, really cool connection. Um, we got into, into a relationship. Uh, we, um, we talk about family, m maybe like three months into the relationship. I always knew I wanted to have a family. I'm the only child, and I always wanted to prove myself that I wasn't going to be as bad as my dad was to me and my mom. So I, that was a sure thing. I was going to have a family regardless. So um, we talked about family, and it was great to see that, you know, he was aligned to family like I was. I always 
picture my life with a multiracial family, kind of like Angelina Jolie. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, um, you know, we got together. Um, at the beginning, he was living here, so he was like driving all the time back and forth. Um, a couple of years later, we, uh, I, I moved this way. I was going to LA every day for work, but um, that's what love does to you. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, I, um, um, you know, we got into really talking about our options, and at that point, we didn't know that adoption was an option for us. So we went to a meeting to learn about surrogacy. It was great. I wasn't too excited about having my DNA on anybody else. But at the time, it was way too expensive, and we knew we wanted more than one. So we decided to, we actually learned at that meeting that adoption as a gay couple was, was, was an option. So we found an agency. Um, we went to their orientation. We signed up that same day. Um, and that was around, I would say, well, that was actually in 2010. Um, a couple months to get certified, you know, you have to do some classes and, you know, making sure that you didn't do anything illegal in your life and that stuff. Um, anyway, it was that summer 2010, we got certified, we go to Spain on vacation, and I remember, this, w this was a private agency, so I remember that we were in my hometown, Cordoba, in the south of Spain, very close to Granada, um, and we got a call, and I picked up the phone, and, you know, this lady is on the other side, and she was like, hi, my name is Alex, and, you know, like, I, wanna, I want you to have my kid. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, you know, I had so many questions, you know, like, you are waiting for that call. But we were, you know, we were thinking we were going to have to wait a year. And that was, like, just, like, two months later that we got certified. So, you know, I had so many questions, like, you know, where are you from and what you're doing? Are you taking care of you and this, 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 and that? I forgot. I mean, I didn't even think about any questions. I was just like, okay, 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 you know. Um, so, you know, we finished the conversation. We pretty much came back to the U.S., met with her, and... Um, it was great. She was four months pregnant, so we went through the process, through the pregnancy process with her. And it wasn't until, well, you know, nine months. Um, <laughs> but, like, every month we kept going to the doctor to make sure that she was okay and for the checkup. So that last time I went to L.A. with her. She lived there and um, went to the doctor and she was told, hey, you are really low on fluids. We're going to send you to the hospital. So we go to the hospital, and they agree. We're going to have to have the baby. So I call Alan, my husband. You got to come now. Like, we are having a baby. So, um, you know, we get into a room, and, and I was just, like, shocked. Like, I was just, like, looking everywhere, making sure that she wasn't screaming too much. Like, I was just, like, trying to control the situation, um, Alan got there, and it wasn't until like 3 a.m. that we got into the labor room. Um, my first son was born. 
And believe me that I cannot find a way to describe how I felt in that particular moment. Seeing your son being born, cutting the umbilical cord, and taking that baby with you, I just cannot explain. Um, so, you know, we were super excited, took the baby home, and then adoption was real right there. So then you get no sleep, you don't get to be pretty, then, then two hours to LA for work, they actually seemed like 25, and Starbucks was my best friend at the time. Anyway, um, but you know, we had a baby, we were happy, um, we couldn't be happier. Um, and you learn really fast, like you only need seven days. Seven days with a baby and you are a pro. <laughs> so. We were very excited, and we knew we wanted another, so we, this time, decided to go through the county. We got certified through the county, and we thought it was gonna be a longer process, but, you know, again, we got certified in 2011, and we went for vacation to Spain, <laughs> and we got a call. This time was the social, uh, social worker. Hey, we have a match. So um, we came back. And, um, but we came back to a very different story. The baby, the baby had been, he was born blue. He couldn't breathe at all. He was in intensive care for over a week. Um, he was taking 20, medic 20 different medications just for him to be able to be alive. And that was due to everything that he was exposed prior to the birth. So we, we were told, like, you know, he is gonna be a challenge for the rest of your life. But we, you know, we, I was holding him, I was looking at Alan. We just couldn't say no, you know? So we just took him with us. I was a little bit difficult at first. A lot of doctors, a lot of appointments, changing your schedule around for everything to make sure that your baby is okay. Um, you might think we're crazy, but we decided to go for another one. Uh, we, because, you know, we wanted a little girl. So we went for the girl, and we ended up, but this time we didn't go to Spain. Um, <laughs> so we got another call. Um, it was for another, for another boy. I was like, well, how do you call that a match? I, you know, I wanted a girl. But anyway, so we went to meet the little boy, and we fell in love with him, so we couldn't say no. But again, it was a sad story. Um, I remember when I met him, he wouldn't even do eye contact with me. You know, like you could be playing with him or trying to get his attention, and his eyes were, would be like looking that way. So we were told he was going to be a challenge. Even schizophrenia in the family was mentioned at one point. Um, but we decided to take him. And then, no more. Um, no, seriously. Um, my husband still wants a little girl. I said he can have it once we sign the divorce. Um, you know, and then we have a family, three boys. We were very, very happy family. Um, their names are Xander, Shading, and Shiler. All of them with the X. We are like me. We call them the X-Men. Especially, 
you know, it's, it's very convenient when you're upset with them. You call them, Axman, come here right now. Um, anyway, um, you know, they are, two of them are six years old. The, the baby is four years old. Let me tell you that that medication went away. All of them are completely healthy on zero medication, and they all are bilingual. Um, one of them, one of them is Mexican Salvadorian. The other one is Japanese and Egyptian, and the other one is my chocolate. Um, and you know, I got so lucky because you know, when you think about what you want to become when you're older, when you think about your goals, watch out because things might become true. I wanted a very diverse family, always, and I got it. I didn't choose it. They came to me. Um, and that's something very important. As parents, our goal is to raise kids. That they, when they grow up, they are non-judgmental to anybody. They look at our skins, and we all have a different shade, and they don't see a difference. We want to make sure that diversity for them is not what make what it makes us different, but what it makes us unique. And we travel a lot, they've been in sixteen different countries. They are used to try different things and taste different food and they understand that people here are not like people in Europe and or people in Asia. They understand that if you go and ask my kids what culture is, you you probably can have a conversation with, with them. Um, and that's the type of family that we're trying to build. We have a hard job ahead, but I couldn't be more proud of my family. I love my kids. Um, at the end, love always wins. Thank you. Thank you for such a beautiful story. You're not planning any trips to Spain anytime soon? <laughs> sure? Okay. <laughs> Next up, born in Salt Lake City and raised in Washington, D.C., Andrew John is a sports reporter at the Desert Sun and our last storyteller of the night. Tonight he will tell us about an interesting day in downtown D.C. All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So today, I, tonight I want to tell you uh, a story that takes place in D.C. when I was 18 years old. Um, it's also about the most heroic and probably the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, as it was mentioned, I was born in Salt Lake City, uh, but I grew up mostly in a northern Virginia suburb uh, called Burke. And... Um, you know, it was, a, it was a kind of a quiet, safe place, pretty uneventful. Uh, you know, not, not a lot went on there. And uh, there's actually a, a local rock group that went to a neighboring high school, and they eventually made it big, and they once wrote a song about where I'm from, and it was called Burke is Boring. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you know, about 15, about 15 miles west of D.C., just outside uh, the Beltway there. And... Um, you know, I, uh, but this is where I lived with my family, with my parents and my three brothers. 
I was the one of the middle. I was a middle child, so I was, uh, of course, a troublemaker. And um, you know, I'm confident that I gave my parents more trouble than any of my other three brothers. I uh, was uh, probably at times when I was younger, I probably seeked attention, and I was disobedient and um, sometimes immature. But uh, I think I eventually, as I grew older, I definitely grew out of that. And you know, we. Uh, we always took family trips together. We, uh, you know, whether it was uh, road tripping across the country together or whether we would, uh, you know, whether it was uh, taking a summer trip to, to Chicoteague Island, which is where we like to go. And we would later tell stories about how we gave blood uh, because we camped out and were bitten by the world's largest mosquitoes. <laughs> so um, by the time I was in high school, I... Uh, you know, my parents had continually just ingrained these life lessons in me. Uh, you know, some of the lessons that they taught me were uh, to always do the right thing and to help those in need. Those were a few of the ones that really stood out to me. And by the time I finished high school, um, like I said, these started, by the time I was in high school, these things started to resonate with me. And by the time I finished high school, I really wanted to make my parents proud. And I wanted to show them that these lessons were not lost on me. And I finally got the opportunity one day in D.C., so I was walking um, with some members of my family uh, just north of the National Mall. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this area where all the monuments are, and it was just a few blocks east of the White House. Um, I was also with my uncle, Dave, who was just a few years older than me. He was about five or six years older than me. He happened to be in town because he was inquiring about a job as a security guard at the American Embassy in Moscow, Russia. And he was about six foot three. He was solid. Uh, you know, definitely in the, the physical prime of his life. And we were walking, um, and out of a storefront, a man runs out of a storefront with a backpack, and the store owner follows him, and he's, you know, yelling all sorts of stuff. He's like, you know, that guy's a thief. You know, someone grab him or something. I, I honestly don't remember what the guy said, uh, but it was evident that he, that this guy had stolen something, and this store owner was calling on someone to, to help him and to stop the guy. So before I had a chance to even think about it or hesitate, my uncle and I, we took off after this guy. Now, I know you're all looking at me kind of funny, but we've all been young and dumb at one time, right? <laughs> um, you know, so just a little side note on my uncle. He uh, is from a small town in Utah, and I'm sure was uh, a little naive to some of the dangers of big city life, but... He had spent the last couple of years living in Chicago, and I'm sure he thought he was pretty tough and that really he, he was invincible and that this type of thing was second nature. So we, we took off, and, uh, I, you know, the chase was on here. Um, I, I will say that after a few blocks, we, as we were entering some sketchy back alley, I had to stop because I got a cramp. <laughs> so this isn't something that you hear about in the movies you know, where the hero is running and running for miles and without breaking a sweat. <laughs> this was very real, and I had a cramp, but I had to stop. Um, this was the first time I had a chance to actually think about what I was doing. And I thought to myself, am I an idiot? <laughs> you know, who, who does this? This guy could be armed and dangerous. Uh, you know? Who, who does this? So I started to think about that, and I, I also was thinking about some of those life lessons my parents taught me. 
uh, do the right thing, help someone in need. And if there was ever uh, someone who was in need, this was the, the situation. Um, and, you know, every once in a while I would see the, the man we were chasing, he would look back over his shoulder to see if we were still chasing him. I'm, I, I kind of imagined in my head what he might have been thinking. And I thought, he's probably wondering why two strangers have been chasing him through the streets of D.C., right? So we've been chasing him a few blocks at this point. We're going through the back alley. Uh, I knew I wanted to see what was in this backpack. What, what, what did this guy stole? What did he stolen, you know? What has he stolen here? So uh, we chased him. I, I uh, may not look like it now, but I could actually run. I was an athlete then, uh, about 170 pounds, solid muscle. <laughs> and uh, I eventually caught up to my uncle. I'm running. I'm sprinting. I caught up to my uncle in the back alley, you know, trying to avoid any type of characters that might have been back there. Um, and I noticed we're just uh, almost an arm's length from, from this guy we're chasing as we're coming out of the alley. So I reach out and I grab his backpack as we emerge from the alley and we actually crash into a Park City bus. <laughs> so we crash into this bus. An another thing that happens in the movies that doesn't happen in real life is you don't have when you're in watching the movie. You don't wonder what's get, what the what the hero is gonna do to the bad guy when he finally catches him. But when this happens in real life, what do you do? <laughs> so we're grabbing this guy. He was actually smaller than both of us. We're grabbing him. We're holding him down. He's swinging at us, and we don't know what we're gonna do with him. <laughs> so. At this, at this point, this crowd starts gathering around us. Everyone's wondering, what is going on here? So this crowd starts gathering around, and we're not really sure where we are. We're in some strange neighborhood in the city. For all we know, we could be in this guy's neighborhood. This could be his gang, right? His, his neighborhood is his pals. So we're kind of scared. We let him go. And right after this happens, a police car pulls up, and he's kind of like, what are you doing? Don't let him go. Get that guy. So we're like, all right, let's go get him again. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't have to go very far. We just darted across the street. And as he's about to go down these stairs into an underground metro station to catch the train, we tackle him to the ground. And this time <laughs> we stayed on him. And uh, the police come over. They peel us off him. They cuff him, right? They grab his backpack, and, and I'm like, okay, now we're going to find out what's in this backpack. What did this guy steal? I'm thinking, is it stacks of $100 bills? <laughs> is it drugs? Is it uh, diamonds or some other expensive jewelry, right? So they unzip the cop. Un one of the cops unzips the bag. He dumps the contents out. And the only thing that falls out are six cookbooks. <laughs> So we had chased this guy <laughs> through the streets of D.C., risking our lives. We slammed him up against the Park City bus and threw him down on the tackled him to the ground for a few cookbooks, right? Now, my family later likes to joke that we ruined this guy's promising culinary career. <laughs> you know, he, ha he had the wok and the food truck and the Bobby Flay knives. All he needed was the recipes, and we foiled his plan. Um, you know, I like the, the reality show Top Chef. Anyone like the show Top Chef? Yeah. yeah. 
It's one of my favorite reality shows. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, it's a reality show about professional chefs who uh, go through a, ser- a season full of uh, culinary competitions where each episode someone gets uh, booted from the show and the f- last one standing gets this uh, ridiculous amount of money. And I sometimes wonder if this guy's ever going to be on the show, <laughs> you know, and the producers are going to get into his backstory and they're going to talk about how he worked his way through D.C.'s finest kitchens after doing hard time for stealing a few cookbooks, right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, so at this point, they've got the guy on the ground. They've cuffed him. The crowd starts gathering around again. And I see some members of my family. My mom is there, my aunt, my my uncle's wife, and uh, my brother. And they're just, uh, I I couldn't help but be really proud of what we did. Like, we got him, right? and I was happy that we were still alive. <laughs> the, our stupidity hadn't, uh, you know, caused uh, any sort of tragedy. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, I think I was most proud, though, when this middle-aged woman in the crowd says to us, she's like, what are you guys, like a couple Marines? <laughs> I was, we were like, and my uncle, who said, he, you know, he says, no, we're not Marines, but I am going to be a security guard at the <laughs> Moscow embassy. Of course, he hadn't had the, he didn't get the job yet, but he later did get the job, and he lived in Russia. So, um, you know, this is a, a story that my family still tells to this day when they get all get together at family reunions, and I'm sure over time they embellish it a little, and they all laugh about it, and you know, it's all a good time. Um, I don't actually tell the story that much, but I think about it often because I think about uh, how it continues to reinforce those life lessons my parents taught me. Um, always do the right thing, help those in need. Now I have a a family of my own. I have kids of my own. Um, I have a two-year-old son, a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and not many know yet, but uh, we have a uh, daughter on the way who will be uh, due this winter. (laughs) So uh, I I absolutely plan on sharing these life lessons with them and and many others, but I will advise uh, strongly against, uh, you know, chasing down a thief through the streets of D.C. for a couple cookbooks. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations on your daughter on the way. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming tonight. A special thanks to the Desert Sun team, Kristen Sharkey and Will Dean, who helped with check-in, Kate Franco, who could not be here tonight, and Zoe Myers, who's helping out with photos and videos and a podcast that will be online a special thanks to maggie and todd for being coaches with me and thanks again to the camelot theaters for hosting us tonight it's an amazing venue and i'm so happy that you could all be here and thanks to our storytellers for sharing their stories tonight thank you